This yes. is hell. I see. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming, whatever. This is host Chuck Mertz producing the show this week in alphabetical order. Alex, Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, great. I'm going to have nightmares about these damn levels. Uh, we were in here two minutes before the show, uh, fiddling knobs and asking if Chuck can hear me. Everything works also so produ- far. Also produ- producing this week, Jonah Tomko-Smith. Uh, Jonah, uh, Happy New Year. I haven't seen you since the New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. How's your New Year been? Uh, rock bottom. Rock <laughs> bottom, my friend. I'm just I'm wallowing to hear in my own disgrace right now. <laughs> you know what I saw last night, though, on the news, uh, Jonah, and I'm, I think that you'll enjoy this. Yes. I was watching Channel 5 local news, and I saw Dick Johnson toss to Pete Sack to get a weather forecast where Pete said that there was going to be a light glaze across the area uh-huh. and a patchy drizzle. And he said, it doesn't take much drizzle to make things slippery. And that's the kind of information you want to know from Pete Sack when you're getting the weather. Speechless. (laughs) Thank you. Today on This Is Hell, nativists have been placated time and time again by both Republicans and Democrats on issues of immigration, leading to one security-oriented policy after another, causing massive militarization of the border over a decades-long buildup. All that is for naught, other than creating a walled carceral state to be normalized deep within the borders of the U.S. as well creating deep feelings of insecurity everywhere despite all the security and doing worse, including ushering in the rise of the far right and the normalization of explicit racism led by the president of the United States. Sure, nativism has been around since since forever in the U.S., but it's back out of the closet again, and this time it's expanding and growing and attaining mass. Hopefully, as our second or as our only guest on today's show will argue, Supernova collapse inward upon itself and implode, never to be seen again. Later on this morning's show, we'll have the return of journalist and podcaster Daniel Denver, author of All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. Dan is host of The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Radio, Jacobin Magazine. You can find The Dig at thedigradio.com. We'll also have question from hell, uh, rotten history. Uh, we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming shows. Uh, and you might not already know what's happening on up- upcoming shows because you're a subscriber to This Is Hell podcast exclusively on Patreon, featuring a classic archived interview each and every week that is unavailable anywhere else. And new content from me, including behind the behind the scenes stuff like who we booked for the next week's shows or how Alex and I feel about the new format as we talked about on last week's Patreon podcast, or an update on how the recriminalization of Illinois is going after its first couple of weeks of being enacted. You can get all that stuff if you subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. This is hell. We're not as much about preaching to the choir as we are about going out back behind the church and getting the choir really, really high. While it's tempting to silently or audibly 
offer amens and hallelujahs of confirmation and reaffirmation to many of our guests here on This Is Hell. For me, the show is at its most enjoyable when I actually learn something from whoever's on that day's show, when a guest actually changes my mind, changes my thinking. And there's something that's been haunting me about last week's show, or shows, however you want to describe them, haunting me like a science fiction dystopian nightmare, the kind I often get from this show, but it's usually because we had someone on to discuss climate change and the near-term societal collapse that's coming to a shoreline near you. The horrible fantasies keeping me up at night are not about last week's guests like Everything Everything's Alex Niven, who argued how we not only must break Britain up, but England has to go too, because that's hardly dystopian, and for people like me who still hold a grudge against the British Empire, it's rather utopian, to be honest. And no, my nightmares from last week's show were not caused by talking to Kevin Harris, the radical pessimist who reported that all those U.S. media reports of Iranian General Hassem Soleimani being the second most powerful person in Iran are completely false, and Soleimani having blood on his hands for terrorist acts is very much up for debate and currently not backed up by any evidence. Although it's pretty nightmarish that the corporate establishment news media here in the U.S., which affects all media, no matter how alternative or independent, is repeating propaganda from military and government sources as fact when those facts are easily disproved by speaking with, I don't know, say, an expert on Iran who has actually been to Iran, writing and teaching about the nation's social movements and politics. But why do that when the media can provoke war, leading to countless deaths and a rethinking of exactly who has blood on their hands? What was really haunting me from last week's show was the sci-fi dystopian future and present, I imagine, that came from the conversations last week with Albina Asmanova and Maggie Dickinson. As Maggie pointed out, the regularly cited U.S. economic metrics that determine whether the media reports the economy as being, being good or bad, and the way then that politicians and political debate form public understanding of the economy are disconnected from that economy's impact on people. I mean, we know that. It's nothing new here on This Is Hell. Dean Baker's been coming on our show since 1999 and telling us just that, that the economy is actually disconnected from if people's lives are going well or not. But when those numbers are reported over and over and over as being the real markers of whether people are doing well, we're led to believe everything seems to be going great, at least according to the news and those metrics they use. So why aren't things going that great for me? A lot of people have been asking that since the economic boom of the late 1990s, and the answer they have concluded is... Suicide from 1999 to 2014, suicide in the U.S. went up 24 percent. From 2014 to 2017, suicides then increased again from over 42,000 to over 47,000 annually. Teen and young adult suicides, meanwhile, hit record highs last year in 2019. Imagine if on the nightly news, instead of reporting whether the Dow Jones is up or not, they reported on the suicide rate daily and how that would affect the way we view whether everybody's doing fine like the Dow and unemployment numbers insist. But that's neoliberalism for you, defining anything it can with misleading metrics or labels or causes or effects or whatever it takes to con the public into complicity in a system we are convinced is natural and out of our control despite it being nothing more than a political project that is now 
at its most vulnerable. For example, as Maggie also pointed out, neoliberalism's dog whistle for poverty is inequality. Inequality keeps it so we are not reminded that the real problem is poverty, that poverty exists under capitalism, that poverty needs to be addressed. But neoliberals can only say inequality because that's as harsh as they will ever critique capitalism. Capitalism can cause inequality is about as far as they will go in providing an analysis of any of capitalism's shortcomings. You ask poor people, what do you want an end of? Inequality or an end of poverty? And you can be certain the answer is ending being poor. And the problem is not inequality, but being freaking poor. Neoliberalism causes that inequality. I mean, poverty. And in doing so, eliminates the middle class. And as Albana argued, and as we've mentioned again since the late 1990s, most revolutions have started among the middle class. Those are the resources of money and time to actually rise up against an unfair system. I know it sucks. The middle class isn't my home team either, but I'll root for them against the teams with bigger payrolls. But what if the situations that Albana and Maggie describe continue unchecked into the future? What if that disconnect between how the economy is doing and its impact on us continues to grow? Financialization and all of its focus on gambling to make money, investing and reinvesting in things and algorithms and guesses on anything from who will win the Super Bowl to a high school's SAT scores, the amount of devastating rain that will fall on some far-off land, killing who knows how many people, and in neoliberalism, who really cares as long as he made money? What happens when we become an economy that does nothing but make bets on each other's future, whether that's misery or fortune, rather than creating jobs other than jobs in the betting on human lives industry? What happens when we take the workfare system of forcing the poor to get a job to get government assistance, keeping government assistance from the people who need it the most, those without jobs? What happens when you take that to its logical conclusion, as Maggie has, the end of the social contract, torn up by Clinton, then Bush, then Obama, and continuing the tearing up under Trump, where the deal was we cooperate and we get social benefits, not we work and get stuff. That's kind of what we wanted to leave behind with feudalism. The new social contract we'll have in the world of tomorrow, where the economy has nothing to do with human well-being, will be... If you want your rights so bad, then pay for them. We'll have annual permits for free speech, the right to assembly, and prices will be high, so only the rich will be able to afford them. And why not? They deserve them because only the rich apparently want those permits enough to be able to afford all the rights in the Constitution. Making the poor work for aid was the first step. The next step is making the poor work for Medicare. But don't worry. The problem is not poverty, it's inequality. These people without jobs or money or food or medical care, they're upset of being unequal, not being poor. I mean, come on, nobody's poor anymore. Look at the Dow setting record highs and unemployment at record lows. Everybody's doing fine. Why complain? Globalization got us goods from all over the world, and they're all cheap, real cheap, cheaper than stuff used to be. Stuff is so cheap nowadays that it's disposable. We no longer have to repair the things we break. We just go buy another one while sending the original to some landfill in some far-off land that's probably experiencing really intense rainfall right now. If any investment pays off, like I think it will. Now, with all those repair jobs gone, jobs that helped buttress a middle class in the U.S. that was the backbone of small business America with cobblers gone, 
because who gets their shoes fixed anymore? And who gets their vacuum repaired or any of their appliances? To get your new fancy TV repaired, it will cost you more than buying a new one because new technologies and models are being produced quickly, just as quickly as old models are becoming obsolete and unworthy of anything but the landfill. What a perfect time for all this built-in obsolescence to be taking place during an era of climate change when we should be considering conservation instead of the constant pursuit of economic growth built on waste. Thanks to Elbena and Maggie, that's the future I am now imagining. When I cannot sleep in the middle of the night, like last night, a future where the success of the economy is increasingly disconnected from positive outcomes for humanity and humanity's rights to everything from free speech to clean air is determined by how rich or poor you are. And the way out might be to save capitalism from itself so the rejuvenated middle class can destroy it, which is a fascinating idea questioning my preconceptions and predispositions, all of my team spirit for the poor and the working class, and it frightens the hell out of me, reminding me, behind the church, getting high with the choir, rather than preaching to them, this is hell. Coming up, bipartisan placating of nativists demands for more security to defend them against their imagined threat of hordes coming across the Mexican border and taking their America from them led to the rise of the far right and the normalization of explicit racism and the explicitly racist policies of the Trump administration. But it didn't start with Trump. We'll learn all about the state of U.S. nativism in a couple of minutes when we talk to Daniel Denver. We'll also have Rotten History and who's on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing the show, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio, so clearly... And sadly, Gnome's gone insane. This is hell. The U.S. has a long history of enforcing white supremacy. It's just that it used to be repackaged as concerns over crime or public safety or budgets or families or anything other than admitting it was institutional racism. Here to be our guide to U.S. nativism as it exists today, journalist and podcaster Daniel Denver is author of All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. Welcome back to This is Hell, Dan. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Dan is host of The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. You can find The Dig at thedigradio.com, and you can follow Dan on Twitter at Daniel Denver. That's D-E-N-V-I-R. Is nativism patriotism? Is it nationalism? What is nativism, and how does it differentiate from things like patriotism and nationalism? Well, in a sense, uh, nativism is 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 nationalism. It's also a subset of, of racism that has developed since the, the founding of this country and even before when this country was founded as a settler colonialist project, specifically around organizing the dispossession of indigenous lands and the expansion of white-held territory. And that sort of racial population politics has been central to, to the United States as a country throughout the 19th century has expanded uh, in, terms of, in terms of slavery, in terms of uh, explicit anti-immigrant laws that start to emerge in the 19th century, early on targeting Irish, poor Irish people, and then very spectacularly and intensely Asian people, starting with Chinese, with the Chinese Exclusion Act 
in 1882. So there is a lot that is new and terrifying about Trump, but not as much as many of his liberal detractors might want to believe. That's where the all-American nativism title comes from. Do you think nativism best describes Trump and his supporters better than other terms that have been used like neo-fascist, alt-right, white supremacist, far-right even? Do you think nativist best describes Trump and his uh, supporters and why? Well, I think he's a, a, a racist and a far-right figure. Um, I have often been skeptical of the, the, the label fascist, though I'm very much willing to entertain the, the argument that he has fascist characteristics. But the reason I'm skeptical of it is not really because of the, the arguments about what fascist characteristics Trump has or doesn't have, but because you often see liberals invoke it to try to other Trump, to make it seem as though his monstrosity comes from somewhere else, rather than being something with deep continuities and roots in American history. I mean, until 1965, racism our immigration laws were explicitly racist. It was our, it was the fun, our, the way that our country decided who counted as an American was explicitly racist till 1965. And then after 1965, with the mass criminalization of Mexican immigration, uh, it wasn't uh, officially racist, but the figure of the illegal Mexican immigrant becomes a central organizing principle for American politics. And then that helps make Donald Trump president. So he's not he's not some threat coming from overseas. He's deeply rooted in the worst of American tradition. Why were people shocked when Trump went through with his campaign promise of the Muslim ban? Nobody should have been surprised or shocked. So what does it say about those who were surprised and shocked by his Muslim ban when it was a campaign promise and was actually put into effect? Did his critics simply not believe he would go through with his promise that it was just hyperbole? Well, what I think is even more revealing is that people were surprised that he pledged the ban in the first place, both that he pledged and went through with it, when Islamophobia, Trump did not invent official Islamophobia. The, the, the story with Islamophobia, I mean, there's a longer story that has to do with anti-immigrant politics in general and Orientalism, the way that people in the West think about people in the Middle East, Arabs, Muslims uh, in, in general. But then there's also this very proximate history that begins with the war on terror launched by George W. Bush and his bipartisan enablers after 9-11. And the neocons launched that war with these lofty utopian promises that this is not a war against Muslim and Arab people, but to liberate them. And and remarkably, that framing holds fast with the American public initially. Republican favorability towards Muslims, and this is going to shock people, skyrockets after 9-11. Republicans become remarkably more favorable to Muslims after 9-11 because they believe what Bush is saying, which is that this is a war for uh, Muslim freedom. Of course, at the same time, like George Bush is launching wars all over the so-called Muslim world and bringing the, the power of the national security, domestic national security state against Muslims inside the United States. And what happens is, is when the war on terror becomes an obvious disaster and loses public support, people, many people turning against the war also turn against Muslims. And so very beginning in the mid 2000s, Islamophobic sentiment and activism skyrockets. And so the Islamophobia that characterizes, that is so core to the Trump administration, was so core to his campaign, has its roots very much in George W. Bush's war on terror and everyone, every politician who played a role in facilitating it. 
You write that when the Muslim ban was enacted, protesters flooded into airports, lawyers rushed to court to file emergency motions, and Trump was swiftly dealt the first in a series of defeats as judges around the country put the ban on hold. It demonstrated liberal swooned, the importance and resilience of institutions and the rule of law, at least until June 2018, when the Supreme Court voted to uphold the third version of his executive order, which narrowed the ban but made it indefinite, concluding that Trump's unambiguous bigotry had been duly laundered by way of bureaucratic procedure. Were liberals naive to have faith in the importance and resilience of institutions and the rule of law? And if so, what does it tell you? What does it reveal to you? What does it say to you about liberals and liberalism? Yeah, well, you know, I, I definitely there's there's no shade intended to the many, you know, incredible civil rights and civil liberties lawyer who've been out there fighting the Trump administration in court every day since his election. They're doing incredibly important work. And they have, for example, uh, held up his attempt to eliminate DACA, a protection for young immigrants who came to this country as children. And that's extremely laudable, critical work. But the political faith that many liberals have placed in institutions and the law is incredibly misplaced because those institutions are not only deeply politicized, but they've been deeply politicized as part of the war on immigrants. I mean, especially since the 1990s when we had Bill Clinton in response to right, surging white, right-wing anti-immigrant sentiment in the 1990s pass a number of laws that tied our immigration enforcement system to our criminal justice system. Uh, by the time that the Obama administration came around, uh, he had this program called Secure Communities that made every police station and sheriff's office and jail in this country a front door to the deportation pipeline. So the war on immigrants was actually embedded in our criminal justice institutions, in our legal institutions. So believing that something aside from politics could solve this problem is a big mistake. And I think that is uh, reveals a, a basic failing in terms of like liberal proceduralism and the belief that institutions can save us, when in fact what can save us is organizing a, 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 a multiracial, immigrant-centered, working-class coalition to defeat a far right that uses, that uses division to advance a politics of, of reaction and in, and in support of, of the oligarchy. You write that uh, racist policy in post-1960s America was perfectly legal if it was some called something else. And you add that for supporters, Trump was telling basic truths, truths that elites both from both major parties had long denied and even covered up. Did uh, Trump's predecessors then, and you were just touching on this, but did Trump's predecessors then pursue similarly racist policies but were not labeled as racist to the extent Trump is simply because— Trump is honest about the racist nature of his policies and his predecessors weren't. Yeah, I mean, Bill Clinton did uh, a lot to turn our criminal, both grow our criminal justice system, the system, monster system of mass incarceration that we live under, and firmly link it to a system of mass deportation. If we look at the size of the border patrol, it was around, I think, 3,000 or so. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, in 1993. And then by 2010, it had grown to around 20,000. We went from around 10 miles of border fence in the early 90s to over 600 uh, around 2010. And it was Barack Obama that set record De uh, deportation records. So there was an incredibly racist system in place, 
and uh, also incredibly racist rhetoric being used. But but Trump really tore the mask off and just called it exactly what it was. And to the far right, that had been cultivated by the establishment for decades in terms of develop th th this notion that immigrants pose an economic threat, uh, a cultural threat, and then a terrorism threat, uh, that uh, they were primed for for Trump's, you know, monstrously brazen racist language. You point out that far from an anomaly, Trump's rhetoric and policies alike draw on and expose a deep well of all-American nativism. He was distractors charged, simply un-American, but that was far from the case. The revulsion Trump inspires among liberal elites is rooted not just in the fear of the unfamiliar. They're also shaken by the even more disturbing encounter with the uncanny that is strangely or mysteriously unsettling. What explains their lack of familiarity with this nativism? Have liberal elites been living in denial over the level of nativism, racism, and white supremacy that exists in the United States? I mean, I think they've been living in denial over their own complicity in creating it, which I guess is sort of a function of taking the actions that create so much racism and nativism uh, while proclaiming, you know, universal liberal platitudes about the, you know, the equality of man while, while uh, engaging in such practices requires a sort of active disbelief and amnesia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so what do you, what do you, what explains why immigration became a bipartisan problem? How did it become a bipartisan problem? Why did the, seemingly, why did the Democrats fall for framing by conservatives? Why are conservatives apparently very good at being proactive, liberals real bad at being anything but reactive? Yeah, I mean, people are uh, familiar, I think, with the concept of the Overton window that's been popularized in recent years. And I think that it's a useful way to think about what's happened with with immigration. Um, and so what happens first is that the by the bipartisan agreement that immigration is a problem. And then once that agreement is made, it becomes a contest over who can provide the solution to that problem. And what happened was, is that every single time that politicians, for self-serving reasons, emphasize that immigration was a problem and that their, whatever their latest crackdown was, whatever their increase in fencing on the border, their increase in deportations, their increase in border patrol staffing, that that was going to be a solution to the problem. But it wasn't a solution to the, to the problem. They didn't, it, it didn't stop immigration. Um, instead of re-examining the premises of it being a problem in the first place, it simply radicalized the the, the, the next proposal for a solution. And so the, the history of what happened in short was that Mexican labor migration was longstanding in this country. There was a massive program called the Bracero Guest Worker Program uh, that existed for decades in mid -century, the mid-century United States. It came to a close uh, after 1964, I believe the date is. It brought millions of, of Mexican farm workers to this country. And then all of a sudden, that labor flow continued, but was criminalized. And that led to people crossing without authorization at the border, crossing illegally, which led to the creation of the idea of illegal, the Mexican as the illegal immigrant. And that explodes in the 1990s at this moment where the U.S. has, has you know, so-called won the war, uh, the Cold War, but there's suddenly this great anxiety about the U.S.'s role in this unipolar world amidst globalizing corporate globalization. There's this incredible sense of uncertainty. There's a, uh, 
and this explodes around NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and there is a lot of popular anxiety about drugs coming north, and there's a whole history of the war on drugs here, but maybe we can get to that later, and jobs heading south, and the way that the that the political elites in both the, the Clinton administration and the Republican opponents deal with that is by demonizing undocumented immigrants. And that continues throughout the next three administrations. It's in, from reading your book, it seems to me that there are clearly specific immigration laws for Mexicans. And it seems like conservatives in the far right and those who are anti-immigration in any to any extent that they are all have a, a kind of a focus on being anti-Mexican Im immigration. Why are conservatives, why are the far right, why are those who are against immigration, why are they so focused, why are they so anti-Mexican when it comes to immigration? Well, it's a basic contradiction at the heart of American empire and capitalism. In uh, After the Chine Chinese workers were banned in 1882, other Asian laborers uh, were, were banned following in the decades that followed. In the 1920s, the national origins quotas were put into place, which sharply restricted immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. Who picked up the, the slack for the, 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 the labor demanded by American capitalism? Mexican workers and 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 American capitalism created a profound relationship deeply integrated into the Mexican labor market and uh, and 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 it's basically a, a a denial of it's 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 a denial of the fact what anti anti-mexican nativism is is a denial of the fact that American capitalism and empire ever since at least when the u.s uh, seized half of Mexican territory in the Mexican-American War have been fundamentally integrated. It's this idea that we can benefit from the exploitation of others, uh, of, of other people's labor and other people's land without including them as as citizens within our country. And that's that's the core of the contradiction. Like you see, the anti-immigrant movement as we know it today, explode for the first time in a big way in California in the early 1990s. And who was it that was that was you know building and doing the service work that created the 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 booming you know California of the late 20th century when it suddenly comes to a halt with a recession in the early 1990s amid all of these fears of uncertainty around globalization and the end of the Cold War? It's it's the very Mexican workers who are the backbone. Of, of, of building that society that becomes scapegoated for the problems associated with it. And we see the same thing in Arizona, where anti, where, which becomes the center of right-wing anti-immigrant politics uh, under Obama with their passage of the SB 1070 law, the so-called show me your papers law, which energizes national opposition, of course, but also becomes a rallying point for the anti-immigrant right. Um, you have the same sort of contradiction at play where you have white retirees from all over the country moving in massive numbers to Arizona, well, that sparks a construction boom. Who's doing that work? Mexican laborers. But then, suddenly, this is a total contradiction to their white utopia that they're attempting to build in Arizona because they require the, the, the lives that they're living requires the labor of Mexicans who they cannot stomach the idea of being fellow citizens with. Oh, so... 
what does it say about nativists then, Dan, when clearly uh, the United States has exploited Mexican workers in Mexico and Mexicans for centuries, but the nativists see this as Mexicans exploiting the United States? What does that say to you? What does it reveal to you about nativists when they have that seemingly completely antithetical understanding of what has taken place in U.S.-Mexican relations? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think it draws off like a very kind of ordinary uh, commitment to American innocence that 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 America is never the aggressor, that it's always the the victim, and we saw that you know throughout the 19th century as the U.S. expanded in bloody wars of dispossession against Indian nations across the continent, that it's always somehow still the U.S. that's the victim. We see that you know today with the assassination. Trump's assassination of Soleimani in Iran. Somehow the U.S. is the victim, even though, you know, it's the U.S. that it invaded and overthrew the governments of both of Iran's, like, I think, largest neighbors, Iraq and Afghanistan, and then has systematically, since Trump took office, done everything they could to, to up conflict with the country. But still, we're always victims. And this commitment to American innocence, in turn, is a bedrock of American exceptionalism, the idea that America is inherently a force for good in the world. And so, you know, instead of instead of looking at our our own systems and our own country and the problems that it might be causing, um, American innocence requires that we blame other people. And who benefits from that? Not ordinary American people. Wages have been stagnant for decades. And it's no no coincidence that the demonization of Mexican immigrants has coincided with the stagnation of wages for American workers. It's scapegoating, pure and simple. We are speaking with journalist and podcaster Daniel Denver. He is author of All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. Dan is host of The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. You can find The Dig at thedigradio.com. Dan has been on the show in the past. He was on back in December of 2016 when he was on to discuss his then-just-published Jacobin article, How Centrist Failed Immigrants, which is a great article that you should read, even though it's three years old at this point. It's very uh, in tune with the discussion that we're having with Dan right now. You can follow it. Kind of this book. <laughs> what's, what's that? That article kind of became this book, in a sense. <laughs> See? So people should go back. It's a great introduction to your, uh, to your book. You can follow Dan on Twitter, at Daniel Denver. That's D-E-N-V- I-R. You point out that for decades, hardcore xenophobia had seeped into conservative politics, transmitted across an ascendant network of right-wing television, radio, and ultimately Internet outlets. Republicans and Democrats facing a series of insurgencies on the right provided ideological cover to a constellation of stridently anti-immigrant organizations and constructed an enormous machinery of repression. Why would they provi provide cover for stridently anti-immigrant organizations that constructed an enormous machinery of repression. What was the strategic thinking behind providing the far right that cover? Well, I mean, one way to look at it is what was called under the Clinton administration triangulation, which is uh, to, uh, and I don't remember who I'm quoting here, but <laughs> uh, by, incorpor by incorporating the opposition's rhetoric, you remove their policy claims. And that is this idea that you co-opt, that, that you have Democrats like Bill Clinton co-opting the rights language, whether it's on welfare or crime, and of course on immigration as well. And you, you pursue policies that are in the same direction, but not maybe as psychotically harsh as the hard right is going to pursue. And that worked for Bill Clinton. He won 
re-election, or at least it didn't hurt him. We don't know. There are arguments about why Bill Clinton won re-election uh, in 1996, but it, but but it didn't. It at least didn't cause him to not get re-elected. But what that did over time is increasingly uh, move the debate about immigration to the right. And the good news here is that finally the bipartisan basis, the popular bipartisan basis amongst the American people that has been the constituency for the bipartisan war on immigrants has come apart. That started in 2006 when congressional Republicans pushed this just really right-wing anti-immigrant bill that passed the House called the Sensenbrenner bill, which uh, you, you probably remember and some listeners remember, which would have criminalized mere undocumented presence in the country, which then and now remains a civil offense, not a criminal offense. It would have also potentially criminalized providing any sort of aid to undocumented immigrants. And that uh, passed in December 2005, and it sparked massive protests, huge, huge protests throughout 2006 um, that took place in Chicago, L.A., all over this country. And since then, the, the, the war on immigrants has increasingly polarized the debate, which is a good thing. So even as the right wing becomes even more uh, emphatic about uh, about openly racist proclamations that about the threat that immigrants pose to this country. Increasingly, voters from the center through left have pushed in the other direction. And right now, actually, the, and people would be surprised to hear this, but the American people embrace probably the most pro-immigrant opinions in the history of this country. And so it's increasingly clear that Democrats need to put forward a strongly pro-immigrant agenda, because it's like uh, the, the, the sociolinguist George Lakoff's argument, don't think of an elephant. Don't, do not accept the premises and framing of the right, or you will lose the debate. So don't, don't accept the, the premise that there's a problem with social security that requires cuts to it, because you're giving that issue to the Republicans and to the right. And the same has been true on immigration. So when Trump talks about a wall, it's a huge mistake Then Democrats say, well, we believe that the border needs to be more secure, but we don't, we don't think the way he's going about it with this wall is going to be effective. Trump is going to win the debate on those terms. The debate, the left needs to be clear, and we need to push as many Democrats in line as possible, that there's not a border security problem. In fact, we have a border militarization problem. Again, we've seen hundreds of miles of fencing built on the border in the last few decades, we've seen the size of the border patrol absolutely explode. The border is nothing like what it was before the 1990s. One could cross fairly easily before then. Now it's a war zone, and that's a war zone of the U.S. government's making. And the premise of the entire thing has been that securing the borders, quote unquote, will make the American people feel more secure. That's not what has happened. We have gilded age level inequality, stagnant wages, opioid overdoses leading to record uh, drug overdose deaths. The, securing the border has been a performance to try to convince the American people that the government could keep them secure. And it's clearly not the case. And so opposition to nativism has to be clear and full-throated. We can't have, um, you know, Stephen Miller was on Fox News the other day telegraphing how Trump would want to run against Bernie Sanders, calling him kind of an open border socialist. Well, guess what? 
any Democrat who runs, even one with a horrifically anti-immigrant record like Joe Biden, who not only helped Obama oversee record deportations, but also voted for the Secure Fence Act in 2006, which led to the construction of over 600 miles of border fencing, which in many cases, by the way, looks a bit like what Trump might call a wall. Even if Biden were the nominee, God forbid, Trump will call him an open border socialist. So we need to break trying to try. The triangulation no longer works because the debate is polarizing. And we the right simply has to be defeated. They can't be appeased. So triangulation is not ending, though it should end. The framing that conservatives are doing of the issues is not ending. The Democrats seemingly allow them to frame every issue. Every Democrat, after the assassination of uh, Soleimani, had to come out and say, right before they had any criticism of Trump's actually assassinating of Soleimani, that, of course— Soleimani is a bad man and he must have blood on his hands and that he's the second most powerful people person in Iran. All three of those things are very contested and very much up in the air. What does it say it, to you? Except for Bernie except for Bernie Sanders, his tweet led with this is an this is an assassination, not he's a bad guy. Right. But what does it say to you? Okay, Bernie Sanders aside, what does it say to you about the Democrats that they still have been unable to overcome this conservative framing of every issue and that they have to give qualifiers that appease to the Republican Party and the far right on every issue. I mean, I think it shows that they learn nothing. I mean, this is the, the whole history of, of the last few decades of immigration politics. George W. Bush and Barack Obama both wanted to achieve uh, so-called comprehensive immigration reform, which would legalize millions of undocumented people in this country, and that's good, but they would be paired with uh, more enforcement at the border and more guest worker programs. And what they did, they thought that increasing deportations, increasing border militarization would win the right over to supporting legalizing undocumented immigrants. And guess what? That didn't happen because the right just wants those immigrants gone. And so when Bush and Obama increased border militarization, engaged in spectacular mass deportation campaigns, the, the right was just like, well, well, thank you, but that's not good enough. So they never won the right over. And uh, it's hard to say why, that's a good question, like why don't Democrats get that? I mean, in part, it's because it's not just a strategic calculation, it's because many leading Democrats just have bad values. Like they're not, they don't have progressive or left values and they in fact believe what they say when bill clinton said in 19 in the 1990s uh, something along the lines of we are a nation of of immigrants but we do not accept we will not tolerate those whose first act upon entering this country is breaking the law i.e being an undocumented immigrant I, you know I, like we have to believe that that's not just uh you know, a, a triangulation strategy, but a, a political opinion that is itself hostile to, to immigrants, because otherwise it's very hard to understand why they, why they can't get the lesson that this triangulation doesn't work, because it's consistently failed and consistently moved the direction of the entire political debate towards the right. But finally, I think the basis for that thing is snapping. The Democratic Party is not there, but the people who vote for the Democratic Party are increasingly there. And that's the good news. Triangulation seems to have undermined Democratic values, and so it totally makes sense that a neoliberal like Bill Clinton would be involved in uh, triangulation because neoliberalism is very much, again, 
uh, counter to what were traditional Democratic Party values. You write that escalating deportations, crackdowns that would explode the populations of jails, detention centers and prisons, restrictions on public benefits, the erection of hundreds of miles of fencing and the deployment of thousands of agents to the border with Mexico were together intended to convince Americans that the immigrant threat was under control. Instead, these actions manufactured the threat and made it seem all the more real. Why do security-oriented solutions bring about a sense of fear within the public or at least heightened fear? How integral is fear to a policy, a platform that is dominated by security? Well, let's take let's take Obama's approach where he said, you know, we're going to we're going to protect the dreamers, you know, the most the most idealized immigrants, young people who came to this country uh, without documents, uh, you know, quote unquote, through no fault of their own, i.e. their parents, you know, were still engaging in a criminal action. But these people came here through no fault of their own, who are then contrasted against the criminal alien who Obama promises is going to be the centerpiece of his of his anti-immigrant deportation crackdown, you know, that he's going to go after felons, not families. Well, when you're deporting millions of people uh, and saying that your deportations are focused just on dangerous criminal aliens, well, that pretty reasonably conveys the idea that there are millions of dangerous criminal aliens in this country. I'm sorry. I was right in the middle of pouring my cup of coffee right when you said Oh, sorry. That. No, sorry. Okay. Uh, so is a race-based immigration policy the explicit policy of the Republicans in reaction to what we've been told for decades now was an inevitable majority-minority nation with an electorate that supposedly will vote Democrat every time? Is the Trump and Republican response to some unavoidable demogra- demographic shift racist immigration policies? Yeah, well, this is something we haven't talked about, which I, I, I detail a bit in, in, in my book, which is the, the anti-immigrant movement. I've been talking about the kind of anti-immigrant system that we live under, but there is an anti, a right-wing anti-immigrant movement that was founded formally, in a sense, in 1979 with the creation of the Federation for American Immigration Reform. And it was founded by this ophthalmologist from Michigan uh, who died last year named John Tanton, who ended up presiding over this vast network of a very well-funded anti-immigrant organizations. And for them, the war on quote-unquote illegal immigration was just a means to a broader, a, a, a broader and more profound end, which was a war on immigration as a whole. Because most immigrants in this country are not undocumented. Most are documented and came legally, thanks to 1965 immigration reform laws, which ended the explicitly racist national origins quotas that would have made it, you know, pretty much like when you see many Asians in this country, they are here because we no longer have racist, these explicitly racist laws that were the law of the land for much of American history. And what these groups want to do is basically turn back the clock to if not having an explicitly racist immigration policy, then an implicitly racist one that just constricts immigration and means that basically, effectively, no more immigrants come into the country, uh, specifically to turn back uh, Latin American, Asian, African immigrants who've made up an increasing portion of of, of a country that was founded upon the premise of white settlement. It wasn't even conceived as, of as immigration until the late 19th century. It was thought of as settlement, because that's what white immigrants from Europe were, in most cases, settlers. And these anti-immigrant groups, like the Federation for the American Immigration Reform, Numbers USA, group, the Center for Immigration Studies, 
That is the tradition that they are drawing from. They want to return the very explicitly the 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 American people to one defined by its settler promise of white insiders. And uh, and Trump has spoken to that many times in a number of speeches and by endorsing like a variety of uh, of measures. But the issue is is that. The, the, the war on illegal, quote unquote, illegal immigrants, which was supposed to be a means to the end of the war on immigrants as a whole, an actual just shutdown of immigration, of legal immigration as we know it, it's got, it's taken on a life of its own. So you even have pro-Trump people, you know, it's become a very common anti-immigrant talking point amongst ordinary people to say, listen, I'm not anti-immigrant, I'm just against illegal immigrants. I want people to come the right way. That's a huge problem for groups like FAIR, for the active, for the nativist right, because their problem isn't just with people who come, quote, the wrong way. They don't want people coming at all. But the messaging of the anti-illegal the, the anti immigrant uh, campaigns over the last few decades, and it being ratified at the top levels of American politics for decades, means that people who are the most anti-immigrant people in this country in terms of voters and whatnot, they, they 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 bought the message that it's quote illegal immigration that's the problem, not immigration as a whole. And so, ironically, this moment that the anti-immigrant right has been working towards since its inception to have the most anti-immigrant president, perhaps in American history, um, who is kind of uninterested and unwilling and unable to implement a comprehensive cut to legal immigration. That's a huge problem for them. Instead, he just wants, you know, look at what happened in the 2018 election. He's not talking about cuts to legal immigration then. What he's talking about is the caravan and the need for the wall. The wall is a, a monument to racist monstrosity, but it's not going to do very much to change the demographic direction of, of the United States. And that's what these people are truly concerned about. And frankly, they uh, knock on wood, it doesn't seem like they can stop it. You write, just as racial liberals joined the war on crime and helped propel mass incarceration in order to protect the post-1960s order, the ostensibly pro-immigration figures commanding the political establishment nurtured anti-immigrant reaction in an attempt to manage it. Why blame lingering liberal racism? Why hold lingering liberal racism responsible on the rise uh, for the rise of the right and not simply blame the right and the right alone? What do we miss in our understanding of the rise? of nativism when we only view it as being caused by those on the farthest edge of the far right? Well, I think it's a typical failing of liberal analyses to define racism as bad thoughts in people's heads. This is why, you know, liberal, you know, elites in, in wealthy suburbs whose entire lives are organized around providing uh, segregated wealthy white schools for their own children can then look to a place like West Virginia as the actual font of racism in this country, even though, you know, working class people and, you know, in, in, in places like that, regardless of the, their racist beliefs in their head, have limited power to enact the racism. And so what liberals miss is that, is that racism at its core involves systems of power and domination. And those are systems and structures through mass incarceration, mass deportation, border militarization that liberals from Bill Clinton on uh, have played a 
profound role in constructing. Look at the Secure Fence Act to build these hundreds of miles of fencing, effectively a border wall that we already have, that people don't realize we already had, on our southern border with Mexico. That was supported by Senators Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Joe Biden. You know, they don't have to say, uh, it, it's, 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 you know, disgusting that Trump calls Mexicans rapists, but I would say it's close to equally as, as, as revolting uh, to, to, to vote for such a racist structure like a border wall, uh, regardless of how you frame it. One last question for you, Dan. We've been speaking with journalist and podcaster Daniel Denver. He is author of All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. You, uh, Dan is a uh, host of The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Find The Dig at thedigradio.com. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Daniel Denver. That's D-E-N-V-I-R. One last question for you, Dan. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask. You might hate to answer our audience, might hate your response. Why did it take President Trump to get Democrats to quit being anti-immigrant? And does that mean that at any moment the Democrats could go back to being anti-immigrant? And will will all this anti or all this pro-immigrant uh, activism that's going on on the Democratic side right now, will this all go away as soon as there's a Democratic president, just like the anti-war movement went away as soon as Obama was elected? Yeah, I mean, the, the a, a, a true and very real silver lining to President Trump's uh, election, which, you know, don't get me wrong, has caused immense suffering. He is, he has enacted policies that are harsher and meaner and more cruel than his predecessors. But a serious silver lining to it is that he has, has tarred the entire bipartisan war on immigrants that was created by his bipartisan predecessors with his own toxic brand, which leads to liberal revulsion. And so the task of the immigrant rights left and the left as a whole in this country right now is to take advantage of this fracture and organize around a radically pro-immigrant, pro-working class message. And I think that's what we see, you know, to put all my cards on the table, I think we see that very clearly in Bernie Sanders' immigration plan, which is the best of any candidate in the race and is light years away, just a Enti an entire rupture with normal democratic politics as we've known them. And we can't be afraid of being accused of being open borders, just like we can't afraid, be afraid of being called socialists, because they're going to, the Republicans are going to call any democratic nominee that. So you might as well own it and fight for what we believe in and what, uh, because the, the system, the, the American people are, are polarizing and we have to take advantage of that and defeat the right. Will that activist pressure, though, do you think it will dissipate in any, to any extent if a Democrat is elected? Because we were all hoping for a very radical anti-war foreign policy under the Obama administration, something that was very divergent from the George W. Bush administration that never really came to fruition. In fact, the drone wars and many of the wars were expanded under Obama. So do you think that the, the activists are going to let up on this kind of pressure when it comes to immigration policy any more than they let up? on the anti-war activism? 
Um, I mean, I know the grassroots is not going to let up. I know groups like Endlon, the National Day Laborers Organizing Network, and Cosecha, an amazing grassroots immigrant rights organizing campaign. I know that they're not going to let up. Uh, you know, Cosecha being the group that interrupted Joe Biden and or asked Joe Biden a question about Obama's deportations and prompted o Biden to tell the the, the Cosecha member uh, leader to uh, to go vote for Donald Trump. You know, those groups are not going to not going to let up. Um, in terms of whether uh, a Democratic president would sort of uh, de-escalate the contradictions, I mean, it, it really depends on on who the Democratic president is. But uh, pointing to the Obama administration, Obama um, really helped create the immigrant rights movement as we know it today, because they, they it, it really took off to resist his mass deportations camp campaign, to call Obama the deporter-in-chief. That was what led all of these these cities and states around the country to start pursuing sanctuary sanctuary laws. It wasn't to resist Trump's deportations; it was to resist Obama's. So, if a Democrat goes on and pursues Trump-light anti-immigrant politics, I'm pretty confident that we're going to have a mobilized militant immigrant rights movement that's going to resist it. Dan, thank you so much for being back on our show. Again, check out Dan's podcast, The Dig, at thedigradio.com. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks for having me. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is Hell. Alex, you don't have this week's question from Hell yet, right? You announced that on Tuesdays, correct? Yeah, 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 I'll get a good one for you on uh, tomorrow's show. Cool. It's time for nasty, gnarly, naughty, nauseous, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On January 17th, 1961, 59 years ago this Friday, Patrice Lumumba, first prime minister of the newly independent Democratic Republic of the Congo, was executed by Belgian troops aided by Congolese accomplices. And being the first prime minister of anything considered newly independent or democratic during those heady days of post-colonialism usually got you killed by the former colonizers. In the Congo struggle for independence from Belgium, following decades of bloody atrocities perpetrated by Belgium's King Leopold, Lumumba had established himself as a pan-African nationalist leader who sought to unite the country, eliminate corruption, and harness the Congo's immense mineral wealth to better the lives of its people. You know, all the things the West doesn't want anyone in Africa to do. In so doing, Lumumba was seen as a problem by the United States and others who wanted to exploit those same resources and cultivate a class of pro-Western politicians in the country. Because who's kidding who? Post-colonialism was not all that post-colonial. It was kind of like, you know, remember that really cool post-racism we had in the 2000s? Yeah, that was great. Amid the turmoil of political transition, the Congolese army rebelled against Lumumba's efforts at reform because they had been thoroughly corrupted by Belgium. And Belgium sent in some 6,000 troops, igniting the Congo crisis of 1960. Lumumba appealed to the U.S. and the United Nations for help, but was turned down, surprise, surprise. So instead, he sought help from the Soviet Union in the context of the Cold War. That move only hardened the Western powers against him and led to his ouster by the U.S.-backed Army Chief of staff, Joseph Mobutu. Along with two close associates, Lumumba was arrested and sent to the rebellious province of Katanga, where Belgian troops and local separatists were eager to get rid of him. Lumumba and his companions were beaten and starved for more than two weeks and finally shot to death by a firing squad. The Belgians took care to dispose of the bodies by dissolving them in sulfuric acid. Meanwhile, Mobutu would go on to establish a brutal dictatorship at cost thousands and thousands of lives 
and lasted more than 30 years. It was pretty much the West's M.O., replace colonialism by getting some local to be your brutal puppet, so you can still occupy and control a supposedly sovereign nation. And I'm starting to think, whenever someone puts the prefix post in front of anything, it's probably not really all that over. In Rotten History, January 19th, 1917, 103 years ago, this coming Sunday, 73 people were killed and more than 400 injured in a factory explosion in London, England. And one thing we've learned during Rotten History is that a lot of stuff blew up in England's past. The factory, which had once produced caustic soda and cleaning products, had been taken over by the British War Office and was being used to produce TNT for British munitions in war. World War I. The factory owners had opposed the change, arguing that TNT production was far too dangerous to be conducted in such a densely populated area. So we all know where this is headed, right? When fire broke out in the factory, it ignited more than 50 tons of the explosive, both in the factory building and in transport vehicles outside. The chain reaction could be heard a hundred miles away. Although I've always been skeptical about those reports of how far away you could hear explosions or avalanches or whatevers, why is it always some round number like a hundred miles away? There never are reports of hearing things from a hundred and six miles away. It's always some round number. So I really have my doubts. The explosion sent red-hot chunks of metal, God, I love that band, into the sky that came raining down on the neighborhood, starting fires for miles around. Along with all the death and injury, almost a thousand homes, factories, warehouses, and other businesses were destroyed, and thousands more seriously damaged. A government inquiry later pronounced, the factory site inappropriate for TNT production, as the factory owners had originally warned, and also charged that the explosives had not been stored properly. The report on that investigation was not released to the public until the 1950s, some 40 years later. Because again, the British Empire sucked. And if any of you give a damn about whatever the hell is happening right now with the royals, you're, you've probably tuned into the wrong show. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays Live, This Is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. here on thisishell.com. Uh, Maria Ryan will be on to talk about her book, Full Spectrum Dominance, Irregular Warfare and the War on Terror. Uh, so if you thought immigration was a depressing topic, wait till we discuss the military. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. Thanks to Daniel Denver for being our guest on this week's show. Thanks to Alex and Jonah for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for helping us with rotten history. Truly revolting radio. This is Hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.